Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And as you probably know, stuff happens and it's happening right now. And it has some impact on the New Books Network or more particularly on the following interview. It was conducted in Shanghai. And as you know, things in Shanghai are a bit difficult right now, what with the coronavirus and all. And so the interview itself was conducted in a restaurant where I'm sure the host and the guests had a fine meal. I've done my best to clean up the audio. I think it's pretty good. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, and today we're fortunate to be joined by the authors of an interesting and timely new book uh, that makes the case for the value of social hierarchy. The book's title, Just Hierarchy, Why Social Hierarchies Matter in China, and the rest of the world, was written by Daniel Bell and Pei Wong and published just this year by Princeton University Press. Professors Bell and Wong, both political theorists living and teaching in China, draw on interdisciplinary sources and point out in all their arguments the challenges posed by their recommendations and the political system uh, from within which they work. Uh, this is familiar territory for Bell, who has written works, uh, books over the past three decades on various related topics from communitarianism to political meritocracy and democratic thinking uh, within comparative East-West perspectives. Careful readers will note that his prior work from Beyond Liberal Democracy and China's New Confucianism, to name a few, laid the groundwork for the more widely read 2015 The China Model, subtitled Political Meritocracy and the Limits of Democracy. In the 2016 new preface for the paperback edition of that work, he wrote, Method matters because the question of which ideals should be used to evaluate the political reality is a political choice. This is a point Professor Bell continues to make about his work, including the new book, co-authored with Professor Wong, that we're here to talk about today. Pei and Daniel, uh, welcome and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having us. 
Sure. And it should be pointed out uh, that we're meeting at a downtown eatery in Shanghai where semi-quarantine conditions have been in effect for over a month and, and local schools have switched to online delivery of classes. Many businesses remain closed and people continue to take personal precautions uh, with the government hoping that recent containment efforts uh, won't suffer setbacks due to returning citizens and foreign workers uh, from outside the country. Um, so, um, direct this to you guys. Hey, what has life been like for you both, and, and how have you both stayed busy? Well, it's a good opportunity to read and write. I mean, as dean, I'm more of an administrator, um, and because most of the university is shut down except for online teaching, we have less administration. To the extent we have meetings, they're online now, so more efficient. And to be frank, although I hope this isn't made public to my colleagues, we can do other stuff while the meetings are taking place, whereas if they were live, it's not so easy. And we're preparing the Chinese edition of the book, Just Hierarchy, during the spring. And, and you both um, teach, uh, Daniel Yu at Shandong University and, uh, and Pei uh, Yu at... In, in Shanghai. In Fudan University. Sure. Um, well, um, hey, your book makes the argument for social hierarchies and in a number of forms, uh, structured through its uh, five chapters. Um, hey, which parts do you guys think uh, are most relevant to our current moment? Well, um, so we distinguish between bad hierarchies that are ossified and that serve the powerful and oppress the powerless, and good hierarchies um, that are different in nature depending on the social relation. So in chapter two, we ask what's a good hierarchy between rulers and citizens, um, and the hierarchies can be justified if the rulers serve the people in an efficient and able way. And if we use that kind of criterion, arguably the beginning of this epidemic was a failure in, in China, whereby the conscientious professionals who should be respected because of their training, I mean, that's a legitimate hierarchy who wanted to serve the community, but their views were not allowed to be expressed. I mean, they were, we can call them whistleblowers, um, and their views were muscled, muffled, and as a result of that, um, the epidemic was allowed to propagate itself, and, 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 and arguably that helped to spawn this global pandemic. Um, that said, since then, the government has done, we can call it a seemingly good job, in the sense that now in Shanghai and the rest of China, we're basically almost free of the virus, but the rest of the world isn't. In fact, the rest of the world is getting much worse. So, so there's a kind of, we can call it a seemingly good hierarchy where the government can mobilize resources with the support, the central government can mobilize resources with the support of local government and dutiful citizens in a way that might not be possible in countries that lack this kind of political hierarchy. Yeah, and also in Chapter 5, we discuss the relation between human and robots. And we think during uh, this uh, epidemic, uh, if we could use more robots to, 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 to help patients with food medicine, it would be uh, much easier for those uh, the nurses and doctors. Um, they could uh, concentrate more on other like, 
patient. And also, uh, we saw there are so many. Thanks. Uh, the drones. Drones. Dr yeah, drones. the drones. The drones. They they use drones to uh, to 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 spread um, medicine. Yeah, medicine. <laughs> medicine yeah. to keep the uh, residents clean, and also they use drones to 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 warn people wear masks when you're walking outside. Right. So here we saw so many new tech, uh, new high technique um, uh, thing uh, applying. Uh, for everyday life, and we hope in the future we could see more robots yeah. that could serve human beings. Yeah, so in chapter 5, we argue that a legitimate hierarchy between humans and intelligent machines, we use, we, we're a bit blunt, we say that machines are there to serve us almost like slaves, um, and that's a good thing. I mean, if robots can help in hospitals or, or drones can help supply medicines and so on, uh, but we do worry that um, at some point, um, intelligent machines will become so intelligent that they'll surpass humans in most abilities. And that that point, we need to worry that the hierarchies could be inversed with us as slaves and the machines as masters. Yeah, yeah and also we think the relation between human and the machine couldn't surpass the relation between uh, the intimacy could surpass the uh, relation among families because there are we saw so many cute little robots that people were so fond yeah. of them, and we were so worried that yeah. if they're like all the people care, uh, like much uh, uh, prefer the carry robots, yeah. the carry robots, than their children. That's not yeah. something we're going so, <laughs> we like to see. So in countries that strongly prioritize filial piety, like China, we think it's important for adult children to care for their elderly parents. But if you have cute robots who replace um, or who, who replace adult children in terms of the affections of the elderly parents, we think that's worrisome. So it's not, a, we're not joking, we, are, we argue that from a public policy point of view in countries that value filial piety, it should be ugly robots that serve elderly parents, because elderly parents are less likely to be attached to elderly robots. Is, is that the argument then, or that's the distinction that you guys make between Marxist and Confucian ethics? Yeah, so we, so we argue that both Marxist and Confucian ethics should inform um, the way that we think of intelligent machines. And the Marxist view basically is that a Marxist is a technological optimist. He thought that machines would develop to the point where they're so intelligent and so creative that they could do most of the socially necessary work um, and thus humans would be free to realize their creative abilities uh, without doing uh, dirty and dangerous work. And we, we think that's a good ideal to pursue and we think that machines can and should be used for this purpose. But Marx didn't anticipate the possibility that machines could be so smart that they could displace humans and make us into the slaves. So we think that Marx argued that at some point in higher communism, the state would wither away because at that point everybody would be equal, machines would do the socially necessary work, and there's no need anymore for coercive government. But we argue that because of the possibility that intelligent machines could become so intelligent that make us into the slaves, we need a strong government to prevent that eventuality from happening. And the state, it will never wither away, basically. So Marx is wrong about that. But meanwhile, I mean, that's decades away, hopefully, maybe longer. Maybe, hopefully, it'll never happen. Um, but meanwhile, we think that Confucian ethics has a lot to offer to think about how to design intelligent machines, whether it's caring robots or self-driving cars. We think Confucian values has a lot to offer. Um, and, and, and we give examples. I mean, we mentioned already the caring robots, but for self-driving cars, you know, what are the values that should be programmed in self-driving cars? And Confucian strongly prioritized the values of 
Yeah, well, in English, it sounds negative, deference. And in, in Chinese, rang, you know, it's, it's more like uh, being polite to people, being cordial. And if those sorts of values can be programmed in self-driving cars, we think it would also help to, uh, let's say, upgrade the civility among people at large. Yeah, uh, chapter five is a, is a key chapter uh, and, and the one that you guys really closed the book with. Um, did, um, you, you open it with um, Marx's um, The Fragment on Machines, um, and, and again, that leads into this master-slave relation. Um, so you, you guys are right to point out the, 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 the question of which ethics do you program into these machines. Um, I read that you had visited Silicon Valley and, and had some experience there. What, what, can you share some of that with us? Well, there was a meeting at Stanford where, where there were not just um, ethicists. Actually, it was a meeting between ethicists and, and some very successful entrepreneurs as well as scientists. And none of them seemed to be aware of, um, except those who directly work on Chinese philosophy, of the possibility that Confucian ethics may have something to contribute. I mean, that's so that, so therefore, but what really worried me, especially speaking to some very wealthy and successful um, entrepreneurs and inventors, I mean, they thought that we're at some point for sure intelligent robots or intelligent machines are going to displace humans and, and we're going to become at some point their servants, if not their slaves. So, so they're thinking of fleeing to other planets as a kind of, uh, as a kind of way of planning to get away from this situation, I thought that was pretty scary, to be frank. And also just from a kind of, you know, let's call it socialist or liberal egalitarian point of view, I mean, the idea that a few billionaires can get away while leaving us here, the rest to be the slaves of their intelligent machines, that didn't sound like a very attractive scenario as well. I mean, the good side, I guess, is that some of them were saying that we're becoming vegetarians now because we want to treat... Um, animals and plants in a kind way, the way that, the way that we expect to be treated once those intelligent machines become masters over us. And, and you cover that a bit in chapter four of the relationship. Right. So, so the basic argument in our book about what counts as a legitimate hierarchy is that it depends on the social relation. I mean, there's no universal principle. So the relation between machines and humans is, is more, we argue, should be a kind of master-slave relation where we're the masters and there are slaves. But with animals, it's different, right? Animals have, have feeling. Animals can suffer, and arguably they have also some form of consciousness. So therefore, we can't treat them like slaves. But on the other hand, they're not the equals of humans. I mean, if we have to choose in cases of conflict, you know, we're going to choose to save a human. I mean, there's a famous case in a Cincinnati Zoo where um, this child fell into a cage with a gorilla and they had to choose between killing the gorilla and killing the, the child, the six-year-old child, and they and, and they chose to kill their gorilla. I mean, of course, it's a tragedy, but it's not somebody that... I think even the strongest defender of animal rights won't argue that he should have killed the child instead. In fact, Peter Singer, who's famous for his defense of animal rights, clearly said we shouldn't... You know, he's saying basically in those cases of conflict, he almost acknowledged it. Yeah, at that point, um, humans should have priority. But, so then what should be the principle... Well, we argue that it should be subordination without cruelty, that we should never be cruel to animals, no matter what kind of animal, no matter how ugly the animal, even towards cockroaches, maybe we have to kill them for some hygienic reason, but we still shouldn't be cruel to them. You know, and there was a case of in the Philippines where an artist showed a photographer of a cockroach in an electric chair 
and, and being killed in a very cruel way. I mean, that was to make a point about, uh, I guess, a, against a capital punishment for humans, but it still is wrong to treat even a cockroach in that way. So, so in chapter four, we developed this view that um, the, the principle in forming our relation with humans should be subordination without cruelty. And then we argue in more detail that it depends on the kind of animal. Within that kind of general principle, there's still even more specific principles. Like, for example, if it's pets who, who spend a lot of time with us, then we owe them much more than just refraining from cruelty. We owe them stronger obligations than that. Um, you, you bookend that chapter um, with, with reference to uh, Descartes' cruel animal experiments. And can, can you share some of that in, in Voltaire's response uh, to, to extend your, uh, your point that, that animals are not machines? Yeah, well, I mean, Descartes, he treated animals strictly. He viewed them as machines who were incapable of feeling. And, and, and he performed or at least allowed uh, some experiments, very cruel experiments against animals. And if you think that animals don't suffer, then it's no big deal. But Voltaire was critical of that, saying, no, are you kidding? Uh, animals suffer, and we should treat them in a way that, in, 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 well, in a way that refrains from cruelty. So of course, we think Voltaire was on the right side of history. <laughs> so well, we've been kind of going at this um, in reverse. We didn't start it in, with the early chapters, but jumped right into um, the, the, the last two. Um, hey, do you guys want to go back a little bit um, <laughs> to, 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 to the beginning? Um, and do, do you want to um, maybe differentiate between uh, just hierarchies and unjust hierarchies? So unjust hierarchies are easier to identify. They all have the same structure. They're basically hierarchies that are fixed. They're ossified and that serve the powerful and oppress those on the bottom of hierarchy. So, for example, racism, you know, they're basically fixed, right? Once you identify race as superior to others, it's very hard to change. Um, and, and, then they apply, and then they benefit the races that are on top and oppress those that are on bottom and other hierarchies like... <laughs> like sexism, I mean, uh, very famous from Aristotle, like you famous from Aristotle, saying like women are inferior to men. Uh, but we would know it's wrong. Yeah, and, and, and he regarded women as biologically inferior to men. That's something that you can change. And, and obviously, that's, that's the wrong sort of hierarchy. Or the way of thinking about the Indian caste yes. system, at least in its kind of stereotypical form. I mean, some scholars argue that it's more the influence of the West that it became mm -hmm. a stereotypical form. But anyway, you know, that you have certain castes that are fixed for eternity on, and that have more power than others. And that, we argue, is fundamentally unjust. So, so those are easier to identify. And also, if you think of the history, I mean, in, in the West, the way that we think of the past, we think of, oh, it's generally these uh, traditional uh, uh, fixed hierarchies where you had aristocratic white men who were dominant against the rest, and we had to liberate ourselves from that by affirming the value of social equality. So it's a kind of natural thing, natural way of thinking if you're from a Western country that the past represents hierarchy, which is bad, and the good, rep and the moder modernity represents social equality, which is good. But the Chinese kind of way of thinking about history, I, I think, is somewhat different. Maybe you want to say a little bit about hierarchies in, in China that uh, were viewed as more progressive, so to speak. Uh, yes, and uh, one of the most uh, important criticism on your earlier book, China Model, is that hierarchy uh, leads to this ossified structure of society. Uh, but as well, I, I, uh, I did a little research on Chinese history on this meritocratic system 
I feel that every time when、uh, people, when those literatures called for、uh, meritocracy, it,、um, it was not the 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 high time for meritocracy. It's basically the low low time for meritocracy because they they need more、uh, capable and virtuous person at court. So that's why literature like.、Um, Doing this advocate on meritocracy. So in the very beginning, they、uh, choose、uh, government officials by recommendation. So they call it as recommendation systems.、Uh, everything is like Han Dynasty. But、um, after that, people feel that oh, now the、uh, control for this recommendation was hold to several big families. So after that, we have this nine ranking system. So the 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 power to recommend. To to recommend、uh, public officials、uh, generally moves from big families to local local governors, so they can pro, they can recommend people. And after that, when nine rank system get got ossified again, we have this a、uh, very famous imperial、um, examination system. That's why、uh, that's how people can no no matter where you're from, a big family. A very rich noble family, or just you from they call it a hanmen, like very poor family. As long as you can read, write, and do articles, you can go for the、um, imperial exam system,、uh, exam. And、uh, it, it, if you have a like good article and you can press the、um, the emperor, you can you can have a job at court. So, but still,、uh, even after that,、uh, the exam、uh, system still got a little bit ossified because people feel they have this ca-、uh, capacity,、uh, they're very capable, co- competent, but they somehow lack virtue. So there are some literature in Song Dynasty, Zhu Xi, and he he said probably we should、uh, like revive this. Recommendation system. No, they, they, he didn't call it recommendation system, but recommendation、uh, to recommend someone who are very virtuous and among his、um, uh, his classmates and to 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 get a job at court. Because if there are so many capable、um, official government, but without virtue, it's going to be very easy to to corrupt to, to corruption. So basically. The um uh the the recom uh the system for se- for select and promote um capable and virtuous people in in Chinese history often like um uh correct itself during this process. So we saw uh、yeah. this as a so it sounds so, like so, the so basically um the idea of political hierarchy is not so pejorative. If you think of Chinese history, that it's always been held as an ideal, and 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 people recognize that political hierarchies are bad when they become ossified, and it's precisely in those periods when thinkers affirm new forms of hierarchy. But they defended this idea of political hierarchy on the basis of everybody should have equal opportunity to become、uh, to be to become ex- to to basically to have to become a public official. And we need to think of new institutions that that are more meritocratic that allow for that to happen. So there's no there's not this view like in the West where hierarchy is, I mean, to be a bit crude、uh, or very crude, that hierarchy is the past and it's bad, and modernity means equality and it's good. In in Chinese history, this idea of, of there's always been distinction between the good and the bad forms of hierarchy, 
And in politics, the ideal of political meritocracy has been used to critique ossified, to critique bad forms of hierarchy. Um, so it has a different ring in, in, in Chinese history uh, compared to Western history. I mean, this is a gross oversimplification, but I think it's general tendencies that still inform the way people think. Um, of course, having said that, I mean, in Chinese, the term for hierarchy, Dengji, is just as pejorative as the English yes, term. Yeah. Um, but in terms of everyday social practice, there's much more, uh, let's say, allowance and sometimes even celebration of social hierarchy, uh, not just in China, but in other countries influenced by, uh, East, by Confucian culture, including uh, Korea and Japan. Um, so, so, and there's different terminology in, in, in Chinese that maybe allows us to think about hierarchy, yeah, not just like, in a negative example, way, but like in a, a positive a, way. Some way, yeah. position, proper position. Um, so it, it, we can, uh, like, um, uh, the story can go on from, like, Zhou Dynasty. It's several, several thousand years before the, the, the common era. Common era, mm. yes. And um, uh, there is, like, a ritual of Zhou Dynasty. Um, they, um, they, rank different people according to their like position so uh, but you have to have the uh corresponding virtue to get to that position so there is a, a accordance between the position and the virtue the position and the, uh capacity yeah. so it it it, it, is, it was a very like ancient idea yeah. but some every time when uh in chinese uh history when people call for like we want more new talent in the court. They will use this as a principle. That's if you your virtue, your capacity is not suitable for your position. You have to get out of your position, right? Like uh, left it open, uh, uh, empty for someone else who is more suitable for this. Right. So um, in in China, it's a little bit strange. Because when we are talking about new and old, it's a little bit different from Western people. When Western people will say like, uh, hierarchy is, is old and uh, uh, equality is new. But in China, it's not like that. Uh, when sometimes we will use new old ideas to, uh, to, to, pro to, to, to give a revolution. So that's why, uh, especially in Qing Dynasty, Kang uh, Youwei, he just used Confucius. He, he reinterpreted Confucius as a, as a revolutionist. Yeah, and, and there was a revolution in Confucianism. I mean, even though he claimed he wasn't doing original thought, but what does it mean to be, he used the term Junzi, which we can translate sometimes as noble person um, or as exemplary person. Um, but before him, to be an exemplary, to be an, a nobleman, so to speak, was a more kind of aristocrat in a kind of Western sense. If you're born into a rich or wealthy family, you're a Junzi. And he says, no, to be a Junzi, you have to have superior ability and especially superior virtue. So that was 2,500 years ago. A very positive view uh, of, of hierarchy where it's grounded on superior ability and virtue, not on, on what family you're born in or how much money or power you have. Well, that kind of leads us into, hey, so what are the practical problems of implementing political meritocracy? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, so in a modern era, obviously, we need to combine the ideal of political meritocracy with democracy. I mean, on the one hand, it's good that political system should aim to select and choose public officials with above average ability and virtue. Seems to me it's kind of obvious. I mean, who would want to be ruled by a stupid person or by a corrupt person, right? I mean, maybe some people have that desire, but just to me, it just seems irrational. But on the other hand, we also want to give some sort of political say to ordinary people. Um, so the question is, how do we reconcile those ideals? So in, in China now, I think both political meritocracy and democracy need to be improved. So in chapter two, we have a lot on how to improve political meritocracy, especially dealing with corruption. But we also have a quite extensive section on, on how to promote a democratic forms of government without um, elections at the very top. Because we think that one of the advantages of political meritocracy at the top is that leaders could take, could plan for the long term. Leaders all have some sort of political experience, um, so they won't make beginner's mistakes. Um, so we should preserve those advantages of the political meritocracy. But then we also should have many forms of democratic participation short of one person, one vote to select rulers at the very top, for example. Uh, for example, we have this uh, uh, system of sortition. Uh, according to the study of Global Gang, yeah. we studied this uh, local uh, local village, and they use sortition to the, do the... Um, yeah, kind of um, random sampling, sampling yeah, sortition, yeah, yeah, lottery system, yeah. Yeah, to, 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 to help the local government to do the uh, budget, I remember. Yeah. And also, uh, also uh, in, the, in the time of uh, Mao Zedong, uh, Chairman Mao, he, uh, he, he said we have to, uh, the party should use a mass line to get to know people. And nowadays, mass line has become like an online mass line. So governments could uh, uh, take suggestions uh, online. Uh, there is one website um, uh, for uh, that, that everyone can, can write um, uh, suggestions. And also, Xi Jinping himself even said our uh, officials should not be afraid to, to, to get online, should, should uh, to hear uh, what people's requests, or what 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 uh, the, the criticism from the people, and if they're saying something right, we have to take uh, take the advice yeah. from from the people, and also we have this community building um, as well, like in Shanghai. The, uh, the the classification of garbage, I think it this is a new uh, new 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 tide for. For local uh, residents, local communities to build their own spirits, because people are so in Shanghai, people are so proud of this city, and uh, and people are so proud of that Shanghai. This city is the first city in China, <laughs> truly realize this classification of garbage. And, and when you say that, you mean uh, recycling it? Uh, recycling it yeah. and source of work, uh, like first of all, you, you have to. Separate different kind of uh, garbage. It's 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 not easy for Chinese people, and uh, and for for Shanghai there are different like uh, uh, 
different uh, uh, areas, and some areas were the, the first to 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 implement that, and people living there feel quite proud of this, and they even form this local community spirit out of this. Yeah. We think so. So basically, we should be open to many forms of democratic participation、yeah. at lower levels. Could include elections, but many other forms of participation, including sortition, including mass local line. mass line, modernized mass line, could be local community participation. We think there's still a long way to go, but、uh, but at least、um, there, the, the the potential is there. Sure, and、uh, I, I would think one of the things that we bump up against, or you guys bump up against, and with regard to your arguments, is that. Um, hey, and, and you guys address this that you need to justify this hierarchical pol- political system o- outside this system.、Um, and and the question I'm trying to get to is, hey, w- which ideals would you use as the criterion? So, so if we, basically in China there's a, a huge organization, the Communist Party, with about 90 million members.、Um, And so, how do you justify that sort of political hierarchy to people who are outside the system, who are non-members, so to speak? And and this is where we think that there's many ways of providing for participation short of being member、uh, of, of the ruling party. It was、uh, my my co-author just mentioned、uh, things like local community activities or being selected by、uh, the sortition to、uh, provide advice, if if not. Help to rule on some local、um, issues, but at the end of the day, the big problem with the kind of mainstream political culture in China, which owes much to Confucianism, Confucianism, is this idea that the best life involves serving the community as a public official, and so long as that will be held as the standard of what counts as the best life. I think there's going to always be some sort of feeling of inadequacy, or maybe even resentment, among those who don't have the,、uh, let's say, opportunity or equal opportunity to participate in politics. So it's very important to provide a sense of, or to just change that conception of what counts as the best life, that, so that there's a more plural view of what counts as the best life. I mean, people who are、uh, who do good work in the family, as caring for elderly parents or for children. Uh, people who through religious organizations do good work, people who the public healthcare workers now. I mean, in 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 Wuhan, I mean, who leads a better life than them? I mean, you know, these are so we need to allow for the possibility that that there are many forms of and and of different admirable forms of life. And on the one hand, it relieves some pressure on the political system. But on the other hand, I think it is also a true thing that we should allow for the possible. You know, we should recognize that being in politics is not the only. Uh, is not the best form of life,、um, and and that's where we appeal to to the Taoist critique of Confucianism because the Taoists were always very critical of this kind of Confucian view that the best life lies in serving the community and we should all compete to be the best form public official, and and we say there's resources in Taoism that allow us to question this kind of Confucian view of what counts as the best life. Yeah, the way I think that the best uh, uh, form of life is to 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 be to feel yourself truly to be a part of the nature to、uh, to to feel this harmony in the nature and as people living in city I think the the easiest and the best for them is raising a cute little dog and we can see in Shanghai the most 
probably fe most feminine feminist city in in China. Um, we saw so many cute little dogs wearing different colorful yeah. Yeah. suits, yeah. boots, yeah. and, yeah. and scarves. And, and this culture of cuteness, in a way, is a form of rebellion against this political meritocracy, which ultimately, in a modern society, needs a very strict, hierarchical, bureaucratic system, and often male-oriented. But this is a kind of form of re rebellion against political meritocracy, which we think is a good thing. I mean, on the one hand, it, it questions its view that the best form of life is this kind of being a top public official. Uh, on the other hand, it's, it's kind of playful, and and really and provide to be frank relieve some pressure on the yes, political yeah. system i mean if people derive meaning uh, from this kind of more playful maybe we can uh form of life caring for cute little dogs um then that's that's a good thing as well well you've worked us um, really back into it's a nice segue really um back to the beginning of the book and one thing I had wanted to ask you guys about was you mentioned um the term nighttime hierarchies um, does anyone want to... Well, so, so the basic principle, again, is that the negative hierarchies are easy to identify, pretty much have the same kind of underlying structure, fixed, serve the powerful, oppress the powerless. But the good hierarchies all have different forms, and we need to think about the social relation and then think about what is the relevant principle that justifies hierarchical principles in those social relations. So in the case of hierarchy between intimates, um, could be family intimates or any sort of intimate face-to-face -face relation, we argue that those hierarchies need to be characterized by shifting roles. If they're always the same with one person on top, it's we think that at the end of the day, those hierarchies will, will prove to be negative. So the classic case in history where in a family, where if the man is always viewed as the most powerful person and the woman is less powerful, then that's, that's a, a negative form of hierarchy that we want to critique, right? Um, but then we look at some of the examples from the past, and one very interesting text actually, uh, to, is the Kama Sutra, which is the treatise on pleasure um, from in ancient India more than 2,000 years ago. And there it's, it's very interesting because they describe what counts as a kind of legitimate form of, let's say, pleasure between men and women. And it's very explicit that it has to involve shifting hierarchies where there's no one permanent dominant person, where the, who's dominant, who's subordinate. I mean, for in the Kama Sutra, I've used kind of pleasure, especially sexual pleasure, as a kind of power struggle. But those power struggles can be justified if they involve shifting roles. Who's subordinate? Who's passive? Always shifting, and eventually becomes a kind of unselfconscious, un almost shifting role. And that contributes to, I mean, from the Kama Sutra point of view, to long-lasting pleasure. But we argue that this is a, a kind of very vivid illustration of what counts as a morally justified hierarchy between intimates. Now, that's the nighttime hierarchies. What about the daytime hierarchies? Well, there we argue, too. They won't be as rapid shifting of roles, so to speak, but they have to be involved shifting roles, whether it's between man and wife. Or the kind of classic Confucian view is that we have age-based hierarchies, and can those be justified in the modern world? And, and we argue that, well, the, in a way, they are shifting. It takes a longer time to shift, but eventually... The young who are supposed to serve the old become the old, and then they're served by the young. So those those are shifting hierarchies as well, which can be justified. We argue there's many other reasons to justify 
age-based hierarchies. Um, for, on, for example, there's lots of social scientific evidence now that shows that typically social skills or emotional intelligence increase with age. Um, and, and we appeal to some of that evidence, but ultimately what really justifies age-based hierarchies is the idea that they're not permanent, that they change with over time. Nice. Um, well, hey, you, you guys have provided us, really, a, a, both of you have provided us a nice window uh, into um, the structure of the book and your arguments, um, which um, really with the Chinese political context in mind, um, your, your supporting ideas and, and your personal experiences um, originate here in China. And, um, um, and uh, one thing we've missed and we probably want to look at, hey, can you, you open chapter three with a, a quote from Xunzi? And uh, can you tell us about his importance in the Confucian uh, history? So typically in the Confucian um, tradition, um, Xunzi is viewed as a problematic character. Or he was, um, there in, of course, Confucius himself is the most famous and influential um, thinker in the Confucian tradition. And the next most influential would be Mencius or Mengzi in Chinese, who had a view that human nature is good. Um, and that became the dominant interpretation of Confucianism, especially starting from the Song dynasty. Um, but Xunzi, he was such a deep, profound, and systematic thinker. And he, and if you, I think now he's becoming much, much more influential now among those who are reviving the Confucian tradition. Um, the reason why he was marginalized from the subsequent Confucian tradition is that he had this view that human beings, let's say, have a tendency to be bad. And his most famous or infamous student was Han Feizi, who was the kind of systematizer of the very harsh legalist tradition. And in, in Chinese, legalism means not rule of law, but rule by law, the use of harsh punishment to control people, which justifies an almost very totalitarian kind of society where everybody has to do exactly what they're told according to the detailed regulations. And that was very influential in the first uh, dynasty of China, Qinshu Huangding, at least the first kind of self-labeled first emperor of China. Um, but that was a very short-lasting dynasty, and, and he was viewed as too cruel. I mean, he did a lot of what we can say today are kind of good things, like unifying um, uh, this, the scripts of China, the script of China, building an infrastructure, canals and roads, help starting to build the Great Wall, and so on. But he did it in a very harsh and cruel way. So, so, so Xunzi became let's say, discredited because of this influence on this kind of legalist tradition, which was also discredited in much of subsequent Chinese history, although it was still there in practice to a certain extent. Um, but said his view wasn't that human beings are permanently bad. They could be improved through ritual, through literally reading books, through self-education, through this constant effort to uh, progress, as well as being involved in rituals. And very, his very interesting view is that the rituals are there not to benefit the powerful only, but to benefit those without power. Um, and if you participate in rituals and you take part of those rituals, uh, then uh, it provides a sense of community that binds people together, whether they're powerful or powerless. It gives examples like drinking rituals in a village where first it's the elderly who have more status and powerful drink, but eventually everybody else is involved in those drinking rituals and tends to feel a part of the community. And he also applies this to the case of 
uh, rituals between countries. And so in chapter 3, we argue that the underlying principle that justifies hierarchies between countries is that they're win-win. They benefit both the powerful and the weaker country. It's unlike relations between rulers and citizens, where ultimately they're supposed to benefit the citizens, not the rulers. But if it's relations between countries, then they have to benefit both the uh, powerful countries and the weaker countries. And Shrinz argue that you can have, you can, how can you have those win-win relations? One way is to having these common rituals um, whereby the, sometimes the weaker countries would, to use uh, language they didn't use, but would pay tribute to the stronger countries. And then in exchange, the stronger countries would provide uh, benefits of some sorts to, to weaker countries, material and security benefits. And eventually some sort of common values would develop and there'd be, a, let's say, a stronger form of reciprocity that binds those countries. Um, so we draw on Srinza to justify this view that we can have weaker and stronger relations between countries. We don't argue for the revival of the um, tributary system because obviously that's kind of ar archaic and especially the view that China is the kind of center of civilization and all the other countries are somehow backward and more barbarian. I mean, that's hard to accept in the modern era. And also it's too expensive for China to maintain. <laughs> right, too expensive to maintain because the tributary system benefited the weaker countries yes. economically. That's why they wanted to be part of it. But now they have to be more win-win where it benefits both China and the weaker countries. So we argue that there's a case to be made for win-win relations between stronger countries so long as it's not founded on this idea that China is a kind of morally superior center of the earth, but we can have a kind of modified form. Uh, I don't want to use the word tributary system, but in the East Asian region, normally the stronger country... Well, okay, let me, let me use another example. I'm from Canada, and I do use this, we do use this example in the book. Canada is a weak state compared to the U.S., and, and typically speaking, Canada is going to follow the U.S. on foreign policy, on security affairs. So it benefits the U.S., obviously, but it also benefits Canada because Canada is part of the U.S. security umbrella. They could spend less on the military, more on welfare. So it's good for Canada to be part of this relation. So in the East Asian region, we think eventually China will be viewed as the, as the uh, let's say, the more powerful country because of its more powerful e economy and military and a certain extent of its cultural influence as well. Um, but if there's a kind of East Asian regional system where, where it's win-win, where the security and, and, and economic arrangement benefits the weaker powers, um, as well as if there's shared cultural exchanges that provide a stronger sense of community, then that's a good thing. And we should pursue that uh, as, as a kind of uh, hierarchical arrangement in the East Asian region. Is that what you're saying then, that as a, as a possible path to global stability, it's, it's, it's about regional hierarchies. Right, exactly. Regional hierarchies where people would recognize that it's a multipolar world with different regions being led by different powers. And of course, there are some common global interests where those stronger powers have to cooperate on climate change. Obviously, global pandemics is a clear case now, nuclear regulation and so on. And AI, too, how to regulate AI. I mean, that's going to be a huge global that's issue key thing. Uh, where the regional powers will have to, the head, let's say the most appear, the most important powers of regional hierarchies will have to cooperate to deal with those issues as well. Um, well, we didn't even cover the Tian Sha uh, <laughs> concept, but, but it's um, maybe that's something that the readers can, uh, you know, take on themselves. Um, it's a, a fairly well known. Um, hey, and then as a way to... Um, it is, um, as I mentioned earlier, you guys have, have done a good job of, of kind of outlining the book for us. Um, 
Um, let, let me um, return to the point that, Daniel, you made in the China model, which um, we, we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, because it in, in some ways does bear uh, repeating that method matters because the question of which ideals should be used to evaluate the political reality is a political choice. And that um, it seems like this is more apparent these days, and, and most of our minds already seem made up regardless of the values in question. Um, so um, my point here is, is, as I hope this is another reason why listeners should uh, become familiar with the new book. Um, and as a, as a final question for you both, it, it's long been popular to write book reviews on, on more than a single book with, with related themes. Um, and these days, uh, many people approach their reading in a similar fashion. Um, that is, searching out books with arguments that complement and challenge and provide a kind of interdisciplinary context. Um, I'm, I'm recommending your interesting and readable book to our listeners. Um, so let me ask you, uh, what recommendations would you make for our readers, uh, our listeners, looking to complement and enhance their understanding of, of your arguments? Uh, I would recommend a book written by my uh, colleague, uh, Professor Bai Tongdong at Fudan University. Uh, the name of the book is um, Against the Political Equality. So I think uh, the readers who are interested in our book would also be interested uh, in his book as well. But also I, I would like to um, uh, remind readers that uh, he share different, he, sh he doesn't share the same, uh, we call ourselves con uh, progressive, conservative, he, he doesn't share that. Uh, view with us. He's more like a, more of a pure conservative. He's a conservative conservative. <laughs> or let's say a liberal conservative. Liberal, liberal yeah. conservative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I would like to remind our readers to to take a little bit uh, uh, care of that. But but still, it's a very good book. And um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. also published by Princeton University Press. Published by yeah. Princeton University yeah. Press this year. Not sure. Yeah. I, I'd like to recommend a book by James Hankins. He's um, probably the or one of the leading uh, Renaissance scholars of our day, professor at, of history at Harvard, and it's called Virtue Politics. And he shows that in uh, Renaissance Italy, there were all these debates that were kind of that marginalized of late, mainly because of our concerns with democracy and republicanism and so on. But we, it's debates that are quite similar to, at least in, in terms of structure, to kind of Confucian uh, arguments about the importance of moral education for rulers, about the importance of being of, of rulers leading by virtue rather than law. And he wrote this fascinating book published by Harvard University Press, where he should, where where he lays out these debates in great detail. And the final chapter he also compares it to this to the kind of Confucian arguments about political meritocracy. Um, hey, that's great. Thanks for sharing uh, uh, those recommendations. Um, we, we didn't, maybe in fairness, you guys, in the book, you guys describe yourself as... Uh, um, Progressive conservative. There you go. And uh, so what, what does that mean? Well, uh, on the one hand, we're progressive in the sense that we're attached to what most people consider to be progressive causes, like equality between men and women, um, reducing income gap between rich and poor, uh, dealing with climate change, with environmental issues, we oppose racism. Um, all those we can call it left liberal or socialist or Marxist causes typically we strongly endorse. But on the other hand, we're also conservative in the sense that we value tradition and we think there's a lot to learn 
from tradition when we think about how to deal with our problems today. And in a way, this idea of progressive conservative, I think it's more natural in a kind of uh, Chinese context where where most people, on the other hand, on the one hand, are committed to modernization and socialism and progressive values. But on the other hand, the past weighs so heavily on the present. And not just in, in a way of, of like weighing down in a kind of negative sense, but people look to the past for inspiration in a way that wouldn't be so true in Canada where I'm from. That said, there actually in Canada, there was actually a political party called the Progressive Conservatives, uh, but they were kind of right-wing. Um, that's not what we mean. We just mean that on the one hand, we're attached to progressive values. On the other hand, we strongly value tradition as well. And we think tradition has resources for thinking about how to... Uh, reform the present, but maybe yeah, you... So, and, and basically we do this, we call this methodology as a double criticism. We, all, we, we do this uh, examination on like old conceptions and also we do examination on new conceptions. So it means like we want to examine every conception before we endorse them. So uh, after this double criticism, we would find is it true like zeitgeist, the true uh, spirit of times, and uh, we want to follow this. But still, we still want to conserve a little bit more. So we, so first we do this double criticism, and after that we do this double affirm, affirm, affirmation. affirmation. Yeah. Yeah. And and whatever we come up with, it won't necessarily be uh, universal uh, value, so to speak, because different traditions prioritize different values. So. Um, the, the different zeitgeist, so to speak, there won't necessarily be one universal one. I mean, we are committed to some universal values. We can call them universal human rights, like we're against torture, we're against slavery, we shouldn't kill innocent people. But beyond that, we should allow for much more diversity, um, than, including allowing for different ways of selecting rulers. Um, much more diversity than, than typically people, in, at least in the West, would, would, would allow for. And I think this idea of progressive conservative is, is helpful for thinking about it. Because on the one hand, uh, we are, you know, there are more universal progressive values that we're attached to. But on the other hand, because we're also attached to tradition, though there's going to be different plural forms of, let's say, prioritizing values, identity, um, modernization. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> political values have um, kind of, um, I think, are back on the... Uh, but back up front for everybody. So I, I really appreciate you guys sharing your own um, values. Um, I think that's a nice way to 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 uh, to end your uh, our talk about your book, um, Daniel and Pei. Thanks again for your time and congratulations on on your new book, Just Hierarchy: Why Social Hierarchies Matter in China and the Rest of the World. Just out from uh, Princeton University Press. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for such a close reading of the book. <laughs> thank you. Take care. Thanks for coming. Thanks.